This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. The new year has arrived and 2019 promises to be as difficult, possibly more so than last year. Just before the break, I sat down with Eugene Chasovsky, who is the senior Eurasia analyst at Trafor. He covers political, economic and security issues of the former Soviet Union, as well as other regions, in order to talk over what 2019 can hold. Hi, Eugene. Um, Good to talk. We met in Moscow not uh, 10 days ago, I think. And to catch up with looking uh, back at 2018, that was a year that was, which was a pretty horrible year um, from Eastern European perspective. And looking forward to 2019, which I don't think is going to be that much better in so much as we have more scandals, we have more sanctions, um, and we have an election, uh, a key election in Ukraine to look forward to. Eugene, I mean, looking back on the last year, uh, what's your take out? What's the things that stand out to you? I mean, do, do you think we had a good year or a bad year? Right. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I would say 2018 has been a pretty complicated year. <laughs> I know that's kind of skirting the question, but uh, there's been some, some hits. There's been some misses, I think, uh, between Russia and the West. Certainly, we saw the ongoing standoff, which has now been taking place for nearly five years now, that's only intensified. And I, and I think that that's going to be the case going into 2019 as well. I mean, we saw the the, the issues over sanctions, over the spy poisonings. Uh, now, towards the end of the year, U.S. indicating its, its uh, intention to leave the INF Treaty. All of these are kind of uh, adding up to uh, a prolonged period of, of confrontation and one, like I said, that I think will only probably get worse in, in the coming year. Isn't that actually quite scary? Because, I mean, if you step back and go back to the beginning of 2014 when the, when the really serious clashes started, in those days, sanctions such as they were, were lists of names of military officers who were directly involved in the annexation of Crimea. And progressively, as we've gone on, then they introduced the um, the financial sanctions, which were hitting uh, debt and limiting Russia to whatever it was, 90 days of debt. And then scaled up in April this year with Deripaska sanctions, which hit a company and moreover banned people flat out, full on, from owning any of the assets, uh, equity and bonds. And now, as you say, I mean, in the last week, We've had Russia um, being threatened, that the Americans have threatened to cut Russia off from SWIFT, that the Duma's been talking about what will we do if we get cut off from the internet. And clearly mm-hmm. there's these crushing sanctions um, that are in the works that are now being put off until the new year, but we don't think the, the, the Democrats are going to be any, any softer than the Republicans. If, if anything, they're going to be harsher. And from where I sit, it looks like Russia is getting ready, preparing itself for a full-scale economic war with the states. Yeah, absolutely. I think the question is not if, but to what extent sanctions will be increased in the coming year. As you mentioned, the SWIFT issue is one that has kind of been brought up a few different times. I think that's still kind of an extreme scenario, um, but one that Russia has to take seriously, and clearly they are, by kind of making the preparations that they need to make in order to do their best to withstand it. So it's a 
It's a, it's a big question, you know, how far the U.S. will go. But where is this uh, going? Because, I mean, we've seen continuous escalation. I mean, the, the central bank mm-hmm. this week also um, hikes rates when it didn't need to. And, and the argument everyone's right. giving is that that is to prepare for ruble instability to come. It's not monetary right. policy, it's politics. Where, where is this heading? Because at some point... And, and the, the phrase economic war has already been floated by the Russian side. At some point, they're going to say that an attack's attack, and this is war. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but from, from the Russians' standpoint, I mean, they, they see sanctions as inevitable uh, just because of all of the issues, not just Ukraine, but everything from, from Syria to, to North Korea to the elections meddling. From the U.S. side, you have to keep in mind that, you know, the, the Trump administration, it, it has been somewhat um, hamstrung by Congress, which clearly wants to keep the pressure on on Russia. But th- they also have to consider the contagion effect of something like SWIFT or banning, you know, Russian banks, dollar transactions. These kinds of issues are going to have some kind of ripple effects that maybe they're not going to be able to control all the way, which I think the the Rusal um, uh, situation has has proven that. So I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's a given that they're going to go that extreme route, but it's not something that, that, Mos- that Moscow can rule out. What's the goal here? Because sanctions normally is a tool, a diplomatic tool, which you apply in order to encourage the counterparty to change its ways. However, I think, well, I mean, from my perspective, that all sanctions have done have actually bolstered Putin's position because economically with the huge amount of currency reserves, with the extremely low debt, that Russia has, to some extent, inured itself against sanctions. They're not effective. And as far as domestic politics is concerned, they actually bolster Putin's position. He won 10 million more votes in this presidential election than the last one because he successfully persuaded the people that, you know, whatever you think of me, we're under attack from external forces and you need to rally around the flag. And there's nobody else on the horizon who you trust to do that. And the Russians responded to that. Right. Well, I think the goal uh, is to change Russian behavior, right? I mean, in Ukraine, in Syria, places mm-hmm. like that. Clearly, that's, that hasn't happened. And I don't think that will happen. I mean, Russia is not the kind of country that responds well to this kind of external pressure. But absent uh, you know, changing Russian behavior, the, the goal, I guess, over the long term is to uh, make it painful enough for Russia uh, to, to, to punish them for this behavior. And the thinking is that over a period of, of years or maybe even longer, that it will eventually be forced to make these changes. So it's not going to happen probably anytime in the near future. But, you know, attrition uh, of the same can lead up to big change. At least that's the thinking of the, of the U.S. and the West. Do you think that's actually going to work? <laughs> it's a good question. I don't. I don't. I don't think that it will. Um, not anytime soon. Uh, but there's a lot of things that can come up. You know, a lot of unknown factors that can arise over the next few years. So, in the meantime, I think the West has to send a signal, or the U.S. at least does, uh, to its own electorate and and to the and to the world at large that you know such actions are not going to go unpunished. And and that's a message for for Iran, for for other countries around the world. I agree. I mean, there, there's a need to be seen to do something, and and I think there's part of that. And there's also very useful um, distraction element here, in so much as domestic politics come into it. U.S. I mean, in uh, if they have a, a an external bogey, then then the problems at home with the economy, with with healthcare reform, with with the fighting in between the political parties, with Trump in general. 
Um, it's a, it's a nice distraction to you know. Uh, to to what extent do you think that plays a role? I think it definitely plays a role. I mean, you have to consider the domestic uh, angle, like you mentioned. Um, you know, Russia is quite a big uh, issue here in the U.S., and it's it's a useful bogeyman. Um, but again, I, I don't I don't know um, that this is going to have the impact that the U.S. wants it to have. But at the very least, it will it will fuel the, this broader confrontation that I think will will not be ending anytime soon. But given, all right, if, if you talk to American pundits, uh, one, one of the criticisms or one of the ways people dismiss Russia, if you say, like, it's, it's a powerful ministry or whatever, is that, like, yeah, but it has the economy the size of Luxembourg or Italy, maybe. And they dismiss it as being irrelevant. And again, the arms spending, you know, it's a tenth of what the American spending is. Militarily, it's, it's, it's a, a pawn, a puppy, compared to, to American power. Uh, and yet it's such a huge issue. And again, stepping back, you know, the relationship with other unpleasant regimes and Saudi Arabia is obviously one that's in focus at the moment. Those are sort of glossed over. It's not a problem. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in our liberal values, that they, they, they murder gays and so on and so forth. And those all get a bye because they're allies. Um, but Russia has really been demonized. And... <laughs> To the extent, if you actually put it up against the damage that Russia could do to America is none, to Europe is some, why, why has it been singled out uh, for this special treatment? I, I always put it down to the James Bond effect, but <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, well, in response to your the first part of, of what you mentioned, I mean, diminishing Russia because of its... Uh, if it's weak economic power, I mean, one thing I would say is that Russia has always been weak economically. So it's typically its ability to, to project power, whether that's militarily um, or, you know, conventionally, covertly, has always, um, I think, outweighed its, its economy and its economic power. And that, in a way, I think, addresses the second part of what you mentioned, which is that Russia is seen um, by by the U.S. and by the West as as being very aggressive, as being you know it's involved itself in not just in in Europe in the former Soviet space, but across the Middle East. Um, and these are in direct uh, contradiction in many in many ways to U.S. national interests. Uh, so in that sense, it, it's seen as a country that needs to be sort of responded to, you know, or made an example of. Um, of course, you have countries like China, which are way bigger economically and probably down the line will f factor in way more heavily into U.S. interests. But for now, Russia is the one who's being seen as aggressive from the standpoint of the West. And, and that just can't be, you know, if you talk to people in Washington. The, um, the whole issue is crystallized in, in, uh, in Ukraine. And looking forward to the coming year, um, you know, poor Ukraine is on flour on its back economically, and they're, they're struggling to get it going. Although there's been some pickup in the economy, uh, but of course we've got these this key elections, and at the moment Poroshenko, the president, is uh, on course to come third and not even make it to the second round because no one's going to win in the first round. But possibly he could go through to the second round and face off against Timoshenko, and she is a clear ten points ahead. Um, isn't there going to be a huge change in Ukraine if Poroshenko doesn't win? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that people are sort of taking that possibility. No one's discussed what a, a, a Timoshenko government would look like. And 
her relationships with the Kremlin, well, she has some. I mean, she did the, the, the famous gas deal in 2007. Unlike Poroshenko, right. he set himself full square in opposition to everything and anything Russian. Do, do, you, do you have any idea what's going to happen over this? <laughs> it's hard to predict Ukrainian domestic politics. I mean, one thing I would say is that, um, you know, polling in Ukraine, pre-election polling is, is notoriously unreliable. Mm -hmm. So even the numbers that we see right now, I mean, a lot can change in between, you know, now and a few months from now. Uh, but having said that, I think even in the event of a, of a Timoshenko victory or, or if she were to get into the second round and even if Poroshenko were to be left out, I think that um, the situation that we have now in Ukraine is a lot different than we had just five years ago prior to Euromaidan. I mean, I think that, the, first of all, the public has become more engaged. And I think that any notion of you know, having a, a pro-Russian position or even a, a pragmatic position when it comes to Russia, a deal-making one, is going to be really hard to sell the Ukrainian people at this point, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the conflict in eastern Ukraine now, already in its fifth year, Crimea, obviously, now this new... Uh, standoff in the Sea of Azov. So I think whoever wins, and I, I know it's kind of a way to not answer your question, but whoever wins, I think will will be significantly constrained by that. And I think that the that Ukraine's broader foreign policy, at the very least, um, will will remain intact in terms of wanting to integrate with the West, getting closer to the EU and NATO, um, and certainly uh, the relationship with Russia. I think is only probably going to get worse. No, I How do you I feel about it? I agree. I mean, I think the the one of the the unintended consequences of of Maidan and then the Donbass situation afterwards was I remember going through the 2010 elections with um, Yanukovych and Timoshenko, and there was this attitude to Russia where people were like, "Yeah, but we're kind of Russian, aren't we? You know, Kiev and Rus, and but we're not. We're Ukrainian, and all these conflicts, and particularly Euromaidan." has created a nationality or a sense of nationality. And, and mm -hmm. even people in the Donbass, prior to all of the, the, the upsets, they were sort of ambivalent or not sure about where they stood on their relationship with Russia. But afterwards, they were like, yes, Russia's our friend. We're Russophiles. We're, we're Russian speakers in the, in the east of the country. However, we are first and foremost now Ukrainians. And mm -hmm. that's not got to be got, gotten away from. I mean, that that's going to to remain. And so, um, but then look, I, I'm a pragmatist, and it comes down to to business. I mean, at the end of the day, the job of the government is to provide prosperity for the people. And Russia remains the biggest uh, foreign investor. Um, trade with the EU has taken off, but Ukraine's running deficits about two billion dollars with both Ukraine, uh, with both the EU and Russia. And whoever's in charge is going to need money, lots of it, and investment. And the Western investors are the big retailers like Aushan and Metro and Ikea are starting to move in because Ukraine has a significantly large population, some 43 million people. But that, to me, if you compare to, to the evolution of emerging markets in general, puts Ukraine back into the 1990s, at the very beginning of the process. And it's going to be five years or something until that virtuous circle of investment and growth and spending and wage rises starts. And um, at the end of the day, Ukraine is next door to Russia and they have so many ties, cultural, historical, linguistic, that the business, that, that's the way out uh, of Ukraine's whole, is, is to do business with Russia. 
It's either that or the European Union has to open its markets or do a Marshall Plan, and the European Union has shown little inclination to do either of those things. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, I think that from a pragmatic standpoint, certainly it would behoove Ukraine to keep Russia, which is a huge market, a huge trading partner. I think they're still the, the number one trading partner of Ukraine, despite oh, all I can of their tell you, the, problems. The yeah. Exports from Ukraine went down. Exports from Ukraine to Russia went down by uh, 5% to about 2 billion. But uh, imports from Russia have gone up by 20% in the first three quarters of this year to something like 4 billion. Um, so the, the trading is still going on, but it's all in one direction. It's Russian exporting stuff to Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have hobbled themselves by limiting their exports to Russia. Right, exactly, which kind of feeds into the, the point that I wanted to make, which is that, you know, from an economic standpoint, it could make sense, but you have to factor in political interests. And, and Ukraine is the type of country that, you know, really it, its short-term political interests can can hugely undermine the kind of the, the broader you know, economic interests or, or needs that the country may have. And I think from everything that we've seen from from the, the Orthodox Church split and from now the Sea of Azov, it's going to be a hard sell uh, to the people um, and, and to the government itself that you know, to keep those ties intact, much less grow them. So what, one thing that could make sense from an economic business perspective could, could go the other way on, when it comes to politics. Do you think it could change? I mean, personally, I, I see a lot of the um, friction, the tension being driven by Poroshenko personally. I mean, he, he really has thrown in his lots. And, and after the Sea of Azov clash on the 25th, um, he made a point of doing the rounds of the international media. He was on CNN, he was on Fox or, or um, the various international media and uh, pushing the whole Russian aggression um, Russian uh, attack on, on Ukraine. But um, another leader might be a lot more conciliatory. Um, and on the, the, the European Union side, I mean, Merkel was saying specifically that like there won't be new sanctions on Russia, and they have actually hinted that they're not sure exactly what's happened. And to that extent, there's, there's some Ukraine fatigue going on here, do you not think? I think that is true, uh, and certainly from the European side, they're they're more hesitant to to significantly increase sanctions in the way that the U.S. is is looking to do. So I think, and that's certainly that one thing that Russia tries to play into those divisions. I mean, the EU is is 28 member states; it's not a united bloc. So that that's something that Russia has pretty effectively done, at least in in terms of making sure that major expansions don't happen. Uh, but but going back to your earlier point, I think. Again, if we consider somebody like Timoshenko, who, who, as you mentioned, it can, you know, can act more pragmatically, ultimately she's a populist, right? Mm -hmm. So she's going to keep the 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 sort of the, the public mood in mind, and I think that the public mood is not one uh, for any major compromise or even small compromise with Russia. That's going to be a, a tough sell, I think, in the in this new environment that we're in. That's probably going to last for quite a while. If I'm right about it being the same stage of progress as in the 1990s, then I, I would argue that at this point, really all the people want is a job, an income, and improving living standards. And actually, they're too poor to worry too much about um, politics. Having said that, you know, I already made the point that, that there's a rise of Ukrainian national identity that wasn't there before. And this is mm -hmm. people, after all, that have ousted two presidents in popular protests. 
So maybe that is, it's, it's different to the 90s. The Ukrainians have a lot more democracy um, than, say, the Russians did when they went through this. But um, last question. There's also been this, this emerging theme. Um, Heiko Maas, the, the new German foreign minister, gave two extremely outspoken speeches where he basically said that Europe and the states are moving apart and that Europe is not going to follow America's lead and Europe is going to actively move from underneath the American security umbrella. And uh, Macron, uh, French president, has said pretty much the same when he started talking about European army. Mm -hmm. uh, but then doesn't this all play to, to Putin's advantage because, you know, his major allies, the West, is fragmenting or not? I think it absolutely can. I, I guess the, the question is to what extent, because certainly Russia wants to foster that divide between Europe and the U.S., and they, they've done a lot to, to try to do that. But having said that, any major action taken by Russia, um, like, we, like we've seen you know, most recently in the Sea of Azov, as we mentioned before, I mean, that does kind of have this rallying effect, so to speak, at least in the short term, where you know, the West is reminded of, uh, of, of Russia's sort of, um, you know, from their standpoint, aggressive behavior. This then breeds NATO exercises, potentially some support. Uh, of weapons or security drills, things like that, um, that then kind of rallies the, the Europeans um, with the U.S. I mean, I think that that will be limited to the extent that it can do that. But it's going to, I think, f f at the end of the day, Moscow will be very careful in, in trying to shape those tensions and shape the, the divides between the U.S. and Russia. But it also knows that it can't act too um, uh, aggressively, again, I'm, I'm using this from the standpoint of the West, or, or else it'll risk backfiring um, on Russia. But it's certainly something that it's hoping okay. will happen. Last question, briefly. 2019, more of the same, it gets better, it gets worse. I think some things will be more of the same. Certainly, I think that Ukraine um, and, and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine will probably get worse, unfortunately. Uh, but the, the broader contours are going to be intact. The, the, the standoff with the West, I think, will, will, will stick around, will probably intensify a little bit. But I don't see any major collapse or major, you know, hot conflicts happening in the next year. So that's, that's good. <laughs> what do you think? I think more sanctions, nastier sanctions. Um, I think counteracting that, uh, as I say, I'm a pragmatist and I look a lot at the economy, that the, the, the economy in Russia is actually doing okay uh, and bits of it are doing very well. Um, and that's always a palliative. Um, and European business is very interested in that and they're also interested in Ukraine's um, economy because it's reached a point now where, as I said before, the major retailers are moving in and that, that that's just, they think it's at the beginning of this decade-long growth. And really, at the end of the day, you know, with all this political tension, I think that's the way out of it. I, I think if you inject some growth and prosperity and investment and people start making money and work together, that's the way to solve this in a long time. And the politicians will come around to it um, because the people want that. They, they want better lives. And uh, all this screaming and shouting is in no one's interest at the end of the day. Um, so I think in the short term, it's going to take a while before we get to that point. But I think that's what's going to save us uh, in the long run. I hope so. Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yes. Eugene, very nice to talk. Thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure, Ben. Okay.